Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. First up is commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Um, a public inquiry into the long-running sub-postmasters scandal has finally begun this week. Over 700 post office workers were wrongly accused of theft due to a computer glitch. Neither the post office nor Fujitsu, who designed the software, are admitting liability so far. What powers will this inquiry have to hold them accountable for what was... Uh, a life ruining, mm. really. So, seven hundred and twenty odd postmasters were charged. It was in total three thousand people were wrongly accused. Right. Yeah. So Sam managed to convince the authorities, the authorities they'd done nothing wrong, but many agreed to repay money they had never taken in the first place uh, and went into debt doing it. So the post office has received two thousand three hundred compensation claims. Right. So we're talking big, big numbers. Only seventy-two people have so far had their names cleared. So we're talking about this massive thing that's sitting there impinging on people's can lives. Ex- can you explain why? Because if if it's proven that it was a glitch, it's proven that they didn't take the money, yeah. and therefore 72 people have been cleared, then why wouldn't everybody be cleared at once? One of the hopes is that the inquiry will do that, that it will determine a sort of general compensation level uh, so that the, the High Court can then deal with them as one massive mm. class action. I mean, the problem is that the post office, even up until quite recently, was being very defensive about it all. It turns out they were telling each one of them that you're the only one that's had problems with the system, <laughs> when there were thousands of them and the post office were going, no. So there is liability there, I think. I mean, it's impossible. They've yeah. set aside mm. hundreds of millions of pounds to compensate these people. But I, I think it's important for people to understand, you know, lives were ruined, genuinely. Right, were, I was very good on this. Like, it did a lot of Families, stories. like, you know, people who lived above the post office, who mm. lost their home as well. They, they were shamed to their local community. Women gave birth in prison. People went to jail for over three years. People died before being exonerated. We, we know of at least four people who took their own lives because of it. And so... I hope the inquiry um, gets to the bottom of it. It was elevated to a statutory inquiry uh, back in May last year, which means it will have the powers to examine witnesses under oath, to compel evidence with with fines and even criminal penalties for non-compliance. So I hope they will get to the bottom of it. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello, Dorian. Prince Andrew has reached an out-of-court settlement with his accuser, Virginia Dufresne, reportedly in the range of £12 million. Her lawyer says it's a huge victory for Virginia. Um, who would have been better off if Prince Andrew had gone to trial? 
Um, the press, basically. Uh, this be, the terms of the settlement mean that neither <laughs> Prince Andrew nor Virginia Geoffrey are going to talk about it anymore, which is in some ways going to be a massive disappointment for those sections of the press <laughs> that are interested in the detail. I mean, you could argue also it's it's it would have been in public interest to have a trial and to know more about what really went on. It feels a bit unsatisfactory that so much is, is unproven. But had it gone to court, enough would have emerged about Andrew's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein to be embarrassing to him, even if he had cleared his name, mm. which we can't say how likely that is or otherwise really at the moment. But if he, in the perhaps unlikely event that he had managed to clear his name, still there would have been dirty laundry out there. So, yeah, as I say, they're, they're really, this is a win for everybody, except for those who want to know more about what went on and are not satisfied with the information that they have so far. Uh, and from what I gather from the news today, it's not clear where this money is coming from. No, it's not. I mean, some is coming from Andrew himself, even if he's only, I mean, I say only, even if he's only had to pay out 12 million, there would have been the cost of his lawyers, which were, I suspect would have been quite high. So some money is apparently also coming from the Queen, though it's not clear how much. But it's not from like the list. It's not from taxpayers. It well, can't be, right? No, it can't be. But on the other hand, the Queen only owns things and estates and that she can benefit from because of her position. She only enjoys access to vast amounts of income because of the things that we let her own. Mm. So to say that it's not part of the list is a little bit perhaps misleading. Our guest this week is a former diplomat with over 30 years experience, during which time she's been posted to countries including Georgia, India and the US. She quit her role as a Brexit counsellor at the British Embassy in Washington, saying she was no longer prepared to peddle half-truths on behalf of a government I do not trust. Good move. Alexandra Hall-Hall, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, you're now free to speak about Brexit as much as you like. Unlike Keir Starmer, in a visit to the North East on Monday, he annoyed probably quite a lot of our listeners by urging the UK to take advantage of Brexit's opportunities and said we've exited the EU and we're not going back. Do you think this is just political reality for a Labour leader or could he f afford to be more critical of Brexit and even open to rejoining one sunny day? I think it's political reality, but I personally think, although I'm not a politician myself, uh, that it's a missed opportunity because I think there's a political space open there to set out far more clearly all the very visible and increasing costs of Brexit and to make the case for why the government has handled it so badly and has misled the population and continues to mislead and dissemble. And I also think that political leadership involves courage. Keir Starmer believed we should stay in the EU. I think he should make the case for why engaging with the EU in a constructive way is in the best interests of the UK. This week on the show, Russia claims it is withdrawing troops from the Ukrainian border. And why would they lie? But is the invasion <laughs> definitely off? And how is Westminster responding? Plus, we speak to Alexandra about her declining faith in UK institutions and how they can be salvaged. And in the post-Valentine's extra bit for Patreon backers, we're asking, what is the role of the leader's spouse in politics? But first, a word from Roz. Before we start, a live reminder. We're returning to the Leicester Square Theatre in London on Wednesday the 9th of March at 7pm. I'll be there with Dorian, Ian and Minnie Rahman for a few hours of political therapy and audience questions. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. We're also jumping in the blue and pink minibus to the Leeds City Varieties on Sunday the 3rd of April, a 2pm matinee show with Naomi, Dorian, Ian and Alexandreou. 
And then, on Wednesday 8th of June, we'll be live at the Old Market Theatre in Hove, with me, Ian, Dorian and Alex. All tickets are on general sale now. Patreon people get a discount on all tickets, so search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast and sign up for VIP access. We'll see you there. First this week, some Russian troops pulled back from the border with Ukraine on Monday, but NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg claims there is no real evidence of de-escalation. Alexandra, let's start with you as the diplomacy expert. Do you think this is uh, a genuine withdrawal or the beginnings of one? I don't think it is. I'm not there on the ground. I don't have a first-hand evidence of that. But I think even if Russia is going through the motions of withdrawing a few troops now. Putin can send them back in at any time he wants. So even if he steps back from the brink now and there is no immediate invasion, the crisis isn't over. There are still over 100,000 troops in the area. Ukraine is still in limbo. Putin will still have his grievances. And even if we end up, as I hope, obviously, in some kind of further diplomacy, it will be diplomacy at the barrel of a gun. Kremlin spokesperson Maria Zakharova said February the 15th, 2022 will go down in history as the day Western war propaganda failed, humiliated and destroyed without a single shot fired. Now, given that the West didn't actually want a war with Russia and Ukraine is now much more pro-NATO than it was a few weeks ago, how is this a humiliation in their eyes? What has Russia got out of this? What it's got out of it is it's on the world stage. They have had a succession of leaders, Macron, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz flying to Moscow, President Biden meeting and having phone conversations, Prime Minister Johnson. So he's certainly in the limelight and he's raising awareness of Russian grievances. Ukraine is further destabilized. Its economy has been undermined by all the uncertainty. But... I would say that in some ways, Russian actions have been highly counterproductive because it has forced even the highly reticent Germans to speak up in support of the principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity. Uh, It's not yet been fully explicit, but implicitly, the Germans have acknowledged that if Russia invades Nord Stream 2, its critical pipeline will be dead. It has increased support for NATO amongst Ukraine and Georgians. And it has led to a decision announced recently today that NATO will be sending even more support both to Ukraine and to NATO members closest to Russia. So from that point of view, it's a kind of Pyrrhic victory. One of Russia's big demands is that NATO should rule out Ukrainian membership. Um, And some people say, well, that wouldn't be any great concession because it's not on the cards in the near future anyway. How do you think NATO should handle that issue? I personally think principles matter. And we should never accept that another country has the right to dictate the destiny of an independent sovereign country like Ukraine or Georgia, which is the country I know better. I think if you compromise on those principles, you establish a really dangerous precedent. What I do think NATO can do is continue to uh, engage with Russia. 
continue to offer to be transparent about its deployments. There is absolutely no intention by NATO to invade Russia. There is no intention by Ukraine to launch an attack on Russia. One of the issues that I find so frustrating over this whole scenario is Russia spinning the narrative that somehow NATO's actions are provocative or Ukraine's actions are provocative. When it was Russia that invaded Ukraine, it was Russia that seized part of Ukrainian territory. And everything that is happening is as a consequence of Russian threats. So we can negotiate on transparency. We would like to have more arms control dialogues with Russia, but I don't think we can compromise on core principles. As it happens, and as the German Chancellor pretty much alluded to, the prospects for either Ukraine or Georgia joining NATO anytime soon are extremely slim, not least because Russia is occupying part of Ukraine and part of Georgia. That does complicate matters. It does. Alex, despite what some were saying, this crisis didn't actually push Johnson's domestic problems out of the news. I think perhaps people have a kind of a sort of Falklands memory that Mm. that kind of a military crisis is always useful uh, for a prime minister. Do you think that he wanted the opportunity to be or enjoyed the opportunity to be world leader for a bit? Or would he be as relieved as the rest of us that there isn't this whole other thing that he has to deal with that I suspect perhaps he is not well equipped to deal with? I mean, it it hasn't pushed the stories completely out of the news, but it has pushed them some of the way out. I mean, undoubtedly, it's been helpful to Johnson, even by the basic function of sort of limiting the column inches right. and and TV time and radio time that people can devote to, to covering his misdeeds uh, and the sort of bandwidth. I think it's also made it easier for his defenders to to claim that, uh, you know, anyone pressing on Partygate is being um, superficial, you know, that they're going after a... A, a thing while there's this other much more important thing going on. So I think it's been helpful in that way. It's quite interesting that there's a parallel there between the reaction to COVID and what Johnson has been doing in that if all these things had broken out together, it would have created a massive torrent that would have swept him out mm. of power. But he's flattened the curve in a weird way by having these revelations little by little over a much longer period of time. People have gotten used to the idea of the drip, 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 and it somehow seems less big or less, you know, fatal to him. Don't worry, listeners, we will have some Partygate content <laughs> later in the show. He squashed the sombrero <laughs> of scandals. Yeah. It was a bit depressing, I thought, to see people cheering Sergei Lavrov's trollish comments about Truss, uh, given what a kind of devious shit uh, Lavrov <laughs> is. But she hasn't exactly covered herself in glory. How did she fare in her first big test as Foreign Secretary at a time, of course, when she is being talked about, although perhaps talked about less? Uh, and mainly a, by her. <laughs> <laughs> as, you know, Sunak's main rival um, for, for the next leader. How, what's this... Because she's done very well. She's been very lucky. I think we discussed in a recent sort of mini profile of trust. She's been very lucky in the timing of her previous Mm, jobs. mm. that She managed to sort of come in at the right point, do pretty well, leave before things got hairy. Not so here. No, look, I think government handling of this has been awful. 
throughout, actually. There was a press conference last week with the head of NATO in which Johnson told journalists pretty much that we were engaging with Russia diplomatically just to play for time. He literally said, we're just occupying their bandwidth until we scramble troops. And it's like, well, everyone knows that, but don't fucking tell them. Um, Then you have the defense secretary making comments about Munich, about a whiff of Munich, that Ukraine has, the Ukraine administration has actually come out and said, we're unhelpful. Mm. Then you have Liz Trust just do this disastrous visit. I mean, it was a disaster by even commentators who are friendly to her. It was yeah. considered a disaster, compounded by that, by that awful photo opportunity of her in a in a woolly hat in the in the russian equivalent of a heat wave sort of we- wearing a, a fur hat outside the basilica i've had a photo but, taken just like that you know in the expression of someone who can't work to work out what 7 times 8 is while struggling with a visit to the toilet and yes lavrov would have made fun of her and demeaned her whatever she said, but she certainly made it bloody easy and credible for Mm. him to do so. Rods, we've talked before about doing something, not us personally, about Russian money laundering and financial influence on London, although we would if we could. (laughs) Whatever, whether or not this crisis is winding down, has it given the government enough of an incentive? Obviously, it was something they were talking about. If the moment passes, do you think that they, they, they will have the will to do something? Yeah, the question is whether it will still be a priority by the time legislation is drafted, by the time the next Queen's speech, whether our eyes will still be on Ukraine. I mean, what needs to happen, I think, for that to happen is is for the channels of influence of Russian money to be exposed in a way that people can understand. And an initial way of doing that would have been to have a register of overseas property owners in the UK, which is something that Lord Fawkes, he Uh, explained to The Guardian Mm. yesterday, wanted and advocated when Theresa May was PM and didn't get because basically a load of senior people in various departments called him in and said, you don't need to worry about this. We've got all this in train. Just calm down and, and, you know, it's it's all in hand. And of course, no new laws were in train. And as I talked about a couple of weeks ago on Oh God, What Now? Johnson had an intensely relaxed approach to the issue when he was foreign secretary. Mm. So that needs to happen. And it is really important that Ukraine continues to be highlighted on the world stage, even if there are perhaps uh, a few tens of thousands fewer Russian troops on the border. What we actually found out today was that the Ukrainian U- Ukraine's infrastructure has undergone a massive cyber attack today. Mm. I mean, invading with troops is not the only way that you you can effectively wage war on a country mm. now. Mm. These cyber warfare attacks could be extremely effective, and yet they aren't formally seen as war in the same way. So it needs to continue. We need to carry on watching what's happening there, what's happening on the border and not just lose interest if an invasion, I say if, because we just don't know, doesn't happen. Dorian, Keir Starmer has hit out against the Stop the War coalition for, in his words, siding with NATO's enemies. Are they really both anti-war and anti-West, as its critics suggest? I mean, I think pretty clearly, yes. I mean, they claim that they, 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 they concentrate on criticising the West because that's where they live and that's who they can influence. But of course, the truth is they, they can't influence anyone. 
they're entirely sort of an ir- irrelevant sort of fringe group. Therefore, in their website and you know elsewhere, they are totally free to criticise um, other countries for bombing or invading or threatening other countries. It's just that they choose not to. Uh, and in fact, they published a piece uh, siding with Russia over the invasion of Crimea, sort of approving of the invasion of Crimea. They uh, regularly sort of recycle the the Kremlin propaganda lines um, about, you know, the politics of Ukraine, about, you know, Russia's legitimate concerns. And I think really what happened is that they peaked at the beginning. They peaked mm-hmm. with the Iraq war because there was a genuine... Um, there was a genuine plan for war. There was a war that you could stop. And there was a genuine popular protest movement against that war. So I'm sure I went on a march and probably had a stop the war yeah. banner. Um, that's not been the case ever since. Things have been a lot more complicated in, in every situation since. And a lot of the time they just end up basically siding with Putin or Assad. Um, and now you have ridiculous situations like the new Young Labour, not all of Young Labour, but whoever runs the Twitter account, the, you know, saying that well, we should pull out of NATO, you know, which Labour, a Labour government under Clement Attlee helped found NATO. I mean, Michael Foote supported NATO. And Jeremy Corbyn, there was no policy to withdraw mm-hmm. from NATO. So this is like nothing to do really with Labour. And I think it's very interesting that Starmer, a lot of people are going, well, why has Starmer done this? I mean, it, I don't know exactly why he did it, but one effect that it has had was to show that the left is very bad. The Labour left is extremely bad at drawing red lines to its left. To the right, red lines are everywhere. But to the left, it's very bad at going, these guys, we don't want to, they're not with us, right? They, they're very bad at doing it with anti-Semites. They're very bad at doing it with the kind of like the anti-imperialist hmm. hard left. And so... And no wonder when Corbyn and Abbott are at the Stop the War meeting, Abbott is involved in no Cold War, which is a sort of, seems to be pro-Chinese, similar sort of anti-war group. So, I mean, tactically, of course, it works very well because this is not something that is not a position that has great support in the country. It's not a position that has great support in the uh, Labour Party. Well, do you think Starmer will ever get enough distance from Corbyn? I mean, he's been trying really hard recently. He's been making, a st- you know, we, we talked about the lack of red lines. The red lines have really been been drawn we'll in the last, yeah. last few, in the last week or so. Is he? Do you think the public are starting to realise that this man is very different from Jeremy Corbyn? Well, I hope so, because all of Jeremy Corbyn's supporters have noticed this yeah. and are therefore very angry with him. <laughs> um, you know, I think those kind of... Like I said, I think the, tra- the sort of the tragedy of the, of the Labour left has been that there were there were there were more opportunities after 2019 for sort of continuities, and they would go that Starmer just wasn't interested. Maybe they're right. I personally would have liked to see more sort of left wing influence on domestic policy and retaining some of the 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 best policies and the best kind of radical spirit from the Corbyn years, but without the baggage. Now that hasn't happened. And you see the way that a lot of people responded to him calling out stop the war. And instead of going, yeah, fair enough, like these <laughs> these guys aren't with us. I'm not going to defend some of the stuff they mm-hmm. say. You had people from, you know, you know, Owen Jones and Navarra sort of saying this is sort of outrageous to pick on this group. The irony about all of this is that let's say we do manage to de-escalate the situation in Ukraine. For some people, it will still always be the West's fault. So if Russia steps back, 
I would conclude that actually NATO, um, led by some quite good diplomacy by President Biden, had actually done a good job in persuading Putin there were serious costs. But other groups will say, no, this always proves that Russia never intended war and it was NATO that was all overreacting and nearly took us to the brink. It'll always be the West's fault, no matter what. Well, one of the things that they often say, which which is also a Kremlin line, is that Ukraine's government is riddled with neo-Nazis, has been since the Maidan revolution eight years ago, you know, not not to be trusted. Um, like you said, you, you don't know Ukraine as well as, you know, Georgia, where you where you served for a few years. But what is the state of the sort of, of the Ukrainian government under Vladimir Zelensky? What kind of a country is it now? I think the problem that country has always had is corruption rather than uh, fascism or neo-Nazism. That is just Putin's rhetoric. Um, Mm. But corruption remains a real problem and factionalism and consolidating democracy. And one of the reasons it's so hard for them to consolidate democracy is because they are constantly under pressure from Russia and there is a constant misinformation campaign against Ukraine. And that is also true in Georgia. Alex, can I ask you something? Um, Johnson was foreign secretary for some of your time in Washington. Were there detractors and advocates of him in the diplomatic corps? Or was there pretty ubiquitous sort of rolling of, of, of the eyes and expectation of gaffes? Foreign office habits are hard to kick, so I'm still finding my voice a little bit and finding it shocking to talk (laughs) so openly on political matters. I have to say that actually I have always had such a low opinion of Boris Johnson that I took a career break when he was foreign secretary. So I can only say anecdotally (laughs) that there was a lot of rolling of eyes. There was a documentary that he went along with, I think it was produced by the BBC, shadowing him visiting the United Nations and meeting other dignitaries. And it was there for all the world to see that he wasn't taking the job seriously, that uh, he was out of his depth and his modus operandi was to continue to tell jokes. That said, I also heard anecdotally that he did indeed have a certain amount of charisma and charm And when he chose to, he could turn that on and establish rapport with people. But too often, I think he showed disrespect. And his jokes, I mean, the Europeans and the Americans, they like British humour, but they do actually take themselves and their countries quite seriously. (laughs) (laughs) So um, his jokes sometimes landed very flat. So when Biden... Um, calls him this week and is reported to have said, we're not going anywhere without you, pal. Is there something a little desperate in number 10 briefing that out? Does that that show strength in the special relationship or quite the opposite? To to have to be reassured in those sort of patronising terms? Yes, if you have to say it, it shows that you're vulnerable. Possibly. Mm. I mean, every British prime minister wants to show that they have this special rapport with whoever is the US president. And especially Mm. since there's been a lot of speculation that President Biden is more critical of the UK over Brexit, especially given his Irish heritage, it's all the more important for Boris Johnson to be able to show no, the traditional relationship remains strong. 
And there can be two things at the same time. I mean, you can, on the one hand, have the prime minister wanting to prove his bona fides with the US, shore up his domestic credentials as a plausible prime minister. So he could have his own personal motives that are less than glorious. But you could also still at the same time recognise, hell, we really are facing a serious crisis in Mm, Ukraine, mm, and I actually do need to focus on it. It is possible for both to be true. And even though I think British political leadership has been very shabby and incompetent the last few years, we still have a good diplomatic service. We still have a really first-rate intelligence and security apparatus, and they will be briefing the prime minister. I think it's quite likely that he's chairing COBRA and he is actually taking this seriously. Hmm. I'll give him a bit of credit. And even Liz Truss, I think after she got burned in Moscow, she will be reading her briefs. Next, a question from our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Remember, search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast, sign up, and you too could be putting your questions to the panel. This week, Danny asks, would the panel accept an honour from the Queen, for instance, an MBE for services to podcasting? If not, and I'm guessing no, how should we recognise outstanding effort from members of the public? Should we even bother? Alex, you are an outstanding member of the public. (laughs) What's your take? No, an MBE, no. No, it's not high enough. If I'm going to sell out my Republican principles, I'm going to sell them at least for an OBE or a knighthood. <laughs> like, get serious. Well, I'm kind of interested in this assumption, I'm guessing no, because I must admit, this is one of those things which is sort of uh, uh, sort of one of those kind of assumed positions of the sort of, you know, liberal yeah. left, which I just don't really think it matters. I think it's quite sort of, I think it's a personal thing. And I think it can become a very performative thing if you choose to go around telling people all the time. You know, I always respect the people that turn it down. And then you find out, like, after they die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think that's, you know, I interviewed uh, Ben Oakry last year and he said, because I asked him why he'd accept, you know, he said, well, did he have any kind of conflict about that? And he said, yes, he did. But he said, while this system exists, he goes, if people like him don't accept it, then they become invisible. Hmm. And it becomes basically a kind of it ends up excluding, um, you know, immigrants and people of color and people from different backgrounds because they kind of reject it. So he was just going, well, I think it should change. I think that we should take the word empire out of it. But while it exists, he thinks, well, why should a certain kind of person and that might be from their background or just because their political views, you know, wholesale Rejected, yeah, 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 and therefore you you have this incredibly distorted and lopsided system. Also, I have to tell you, from someone who has turned one down, sort of, it is sort of n- no one like you're sounded out beforehand. Mm. You're not offered one with a palace, thinking you're going to say yes, right, and yeah. then suddenly you turn it down. Yeah. You're you are probed as to whether you'd be interested in yeah. it beforehand and they establish whether to put you on the list or not. So again, no one really turns it down unless they want to make a political yeah. point. So they signal that, yes, I will accept it. And then in a flurry of publicity, don't. Uh, Ros, what about you? Um, it's not going to happen in a million years. But I mean, I, I don't actually have a fundamental problem with it. I don't like the empire bit. I agree with you. It should be 
removed. But as a means of recognising people who are not, you know, have not been elected but have done really good work um, and often goes unrecognised elsewhere, I think it's a good thing. It's also a good thing that it's organised and handed out by the Queen rather than the government itself because oh. you've, got an, you've got an important distinction there because if you've got the government handing out honours directly, I know the government, you know, contributes a lot, but it's just an important distinction to make. And Darren I think, Grimes, OBA, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I mean, the fact is, she is, you know, she does occupy a place in our constitution. I don't particularly like the fact that she does, but she is, since we don't have a president, she does perform that function. Mm. If we had a president, the president would probably perform that function. And and it's the only, you know, it's the only thing on offer at the moment. I would really like to have knighthoods abolished, partly because, you know, in particular, if we see, as we've seen rumoured recently, people like Johnson dangle them as a reward mm. for good behaviour. It would be nice to get rid of that. It would be nice to have just restrict it to people who have been in public service, but as I say, not elected. If I took it, I wouldn't put it next to my name all the time like some weird people do. I do find that weird when you see someone's name and they deliberately put it next to it. So do, do you I think get you the have sense, Dorian? Do you get the sense that Ros is genuinely kind of expecting one at some point? Because <laughs> I get that. I get that sense. <laughs> I cannot imagine that. I, I cannot imagine that I would ever receive one. I simply don't do enough good to the public. And I mean that. I mean that totally sincerely. Mm. I do not have a positive enough influence on public life to deserve one. You have a positive influence on my life, Rose. Thank you. But, you know, I know my limits and I know that I am not worthy of one. Um, (laughs) Alexandra, do you think that if there was a sort of rebranding, a a recontextualising of of honours, that... You know, that you would just get past, you know, like I said, that glaring word sort of empire and that it would become more inclusive. Do you, do you think there's a whole issue with the whole honour system needs kind of a rethink? Well, I somebody recently suggested to me that perhaps they should offer me a baronessship if I stopped tweeting and criticising. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was quite a nice bargain. I could get bought off that way. Of course, I think the system needs changing. Uh, for the reason that Roz said, I think it's absolutely shameful that they can be dished out as reward for political donations. And even worse, that people can be given peerages and actually get into the House of Lords and then have a position of influence over our democracy. I think that's completely shameful. I do think it's a wonderful idea to have citizens awards or recognition of public service and there have been a lot of many deserving recipients of it i don't like the hierarchy like if you are a you know you've been a wonderful school cleaner you get this rung but if you've been an ambassador you get this in the foreign office we used to rank them there was call me God, kindly call me God, and God calls me God. And those are the three rungs of knighthood. (laughs) 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 And so I don't like that ranking. It can be a medal that is awarded for stellar service. And having the Queen handed out or the royal family is a lovely custom. I actually have successfully nominated two people for awards. And for them... It's the biggest source of pride. It was for support to UK-Georgia relations. And they are both so honoured. And they didn't get paid for what they did. So this is a way of recognising that selfish Mm. service. And I'm waiting for my baronetship. 
<laughs> I will keep tweeting until I get it. <laughs> With your finger hovering above the delete account button. <laughs> Next this week, our guest Alexandra Hall-Hall tweeted about how she woke up one morning in January to find herself doubting everything she once took for granted about how the UK is run. At a time when the highest office in the land is under criminal investigation, uh, she's here to discuss what's going wrong with institutions and possibly how to fix them. And we have a lot to talk about. Roz, first let's catch up with Partygate. (laughs) Boris Johnson was sent a questionnaire by the Met over the weekend. Does it matter what he says? Yeah, it does matter. I mean, it's it's his version of events matters. There will be lots of people giving their version of events in number 10. Apparently, they've been ter- told not to concur. We'll see. I'm not good luck with that. I mean, there may be people in number 10 who are seeking to protect Johnson. There may be people in number 10 who are seeking to get rid of him. There will be no doubt different versions of what went on and different interpretations of what went on. <laughs> but for the, the really more important thing is that there are two possible get-outs as far as Johnson himself is concerned. The first is that the Met don't end up fining him. And the second is that the Met end up fining him, but he is still able to persuade enough Tory MPs that he did not lie to Parliament when he said that he didn't think he'd done anything wrong. Now, for the ordinary person, uh, when you were handing out, you know, fixed penalty notices, it was no excuse not to know the law. We don't know whether the Met will take that approach with Boris Johnson. Hopefully they will take the same approach, but we can't be absolutely sure, particularly as there is this issue of where his workplace was, which Mm. most people didn't experience. And they may choose to go down that route in order to justify things. If they do fine him and then he goes to Parliament and... He, you know, he needs to have some sort of defence, and his defence will be in that case. I wasn't aware that the events here were parties. I wasn't aware of any rules being broken. And that, I'm an idiot, basically. Well, the defence of <laughs> it's you, the I'm an idiot defence. The defence of ignorance is not going to work for him necessarily with the Met, but it could very well, ironically, mm. work for him in Parliament. Mm. And that is why what he says to the Met right. is also very important. There have been some people saying recently that he would have to resign if he is issued with a charge, with a fine. I don't think he would. And I think his strategy is based on the assumption that he can still wriggle free Mm. despite getting a fine. Can I push back very, very gently again? I know that number 10 is really trying very hard with this notion that Downing Street is a very unusual place that's a home, but also a workplace, etc. But I think during the pandemic, millions of us were working from home, and that line blurred for everyone. My home was my workspace during the pandemic, as was yours, as was yours, right? So why is my garden um, not a, a, a sort of quasi workspace because you were you were working remotely and i'm not trying to make excuses here mm. but you were working remotely johnson was not working remotely he wasn't he even was... remotely working <laughs> i should say but he was that sounds he like was... one of those signs over there. <laughs> working remotely or not remotely working he was not just allegedly an essential worker which you know <laughs> We can quarrel with, but you know, he was not, he was not just an essential worker working in his workplace. But his workplace was unlike if you work in the NHS, probably not his home. Mm-hmm. And that was okay. the, that's the exceptionalism that he's <clears throat> hoping to appeal to. I think. 
in the Partygate scandal, what has absolutely astounded me, but I am naive and an idealist, I freely admit it, is how nobody in number 10 came forward. Through the months and months of this unfolding saga, it was one party, Mm -hmm. then it was two, then it was quizzes, and now we have pictures of people attending those parties. And not a single person has come forward and said, I now realise what I did was a mistake. Simon Case, who is the head of the civil service, was initially asked to investigate the parties and then had to recuse himself because I think he had attended one. They're all protecting each other. So I think that's the problem. We do not have a proper system of independent accountability to make sure that our political leaders and our institutions adhere to the standards that notionally they're expected to abide by. And that's a real worry for me. The ministerial code, for example, uh, sets down these high-minded principles, but it's basically up to the prime minister to decide whether he's going to punish any minister who violates them. Alex, I know um, I know some people who are civil servants, are very good civil servants. You used to be one. How do you explain, I suppose, what's going on here where, where civil servants as well as politicians uh, seem to be culpable in this scandal? Is that something that you think is sort of the message comes from the top and that, that you know, that want the wrong leader could sort of corrupt the whole culture? What explains the way some of these civil servants have behaved? I think two things explain it. The first one is a, a sort of human element, which is that there would have been an impression around number 10 that because we are in this bunker fighting this pandemic and working all sorts of mm-hmm. hours, God sends, we are somehow entitled to blow off a bit of steam. And they would have made excuses for themselves for doing that. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is undoubtedly um, Johnson's leadership. And not just Johnson, but the Conservative parties for the last 10, 12 years, and actually the tail end of New Labour, there has been a hollowing out of the senior civil service. There has been a hollowing out of the ethos of the senior civil service, of the idea that it must be impartial. I mean, the pinnacle of that we're seeing right now, where Gisela Stewart is about to be appointed uh, a sort of uh, in this new role of civil service commissioner, a new name. It's a new name. She's a former Labour MP, which is obviously so it's but, a wonderful cross-party gesture. But but let me let me tell let me just you, Google Gisela she's Stewart. the first person She's the first politician to be appointed to that kind of position in over 100 years. There's a reason for that. Mm. She will now be responsible for applying the civil service code that Alexandra was just talking about. So you will have an ally of Johnson. You have a leader in Johnson who we know treats civil servants as... Um, you know, his best buddies when they're useful and disposable when they cease to be useful. And she will now be responsible for those kinds of decisions of who broke the rules and who should be let go and who was bullied. You know, she will be overseeing that, even setting aside her Brexit credentials, mm. even forgetting the fact that she she oversaw an organization that broke electoral rules, that was 
you know, convicted or rather found by uh, the courts to have broken those rules, even setting aside the fact that she was in charge of an organization that put out those shameful flyers with red arrows and millions of Turks coming over and the 350 million bus, even setting aside those things as uh, questioning her moral authority and her honesty, the one thing the civil service must be is impartial. And the one thing Gisela Stewart is not mm. is impartial. She's a fellow traveler to Johnson. She's an ally of his. It's clear as day. Roz, in other Met news, Cressida Dick resigned as commissioner last Thursday after losing the confidence of Sadiq Khan. There have been so many scandals on her watch and indeed scandals she was involved with before she got the job. Why did Khan decide to sort of essentially give her the boot now? I think it was the revelations about what was going on in the Charing Cross police station and the horrific stories we heard about how the, the racism, the and also there were, of course, there was the case back in 20, I think 2013, which is some time ago, but when a woman was arrested by the police because she was trying to hand out information to um, a young man who'd who'd been arrested and then taken back to a police station and basically stripped and humiliated and the complete you know the both both of those things being revealed and the fact that with Charing Cross nine out of the 14 officers in who were investigated kept their jobs and one of them was actually promoted so it was clear that if you were going to try and draw a line, <laughs> then that line had not been had never not been drawn by Cressida Dick. It was impossible to argue any longer, which has always been the argument of the Met, that it's a few bad apples because this was a load of a load of different people behaving abysmally. Alexandra, I mentioned earlier this Twitter thread in January, which is a it's very concise for a Twitter thread. It wasn't one of those ones which says one of thirty. You covered a lot of ground and things that you were concerned about. You pointed out, among other things, the efforts the government goes to in undermining institutions that counter its narrative, like NGOs, standards, watchdogs, um, judges, of course. Now, Johnson isn't, you know, an Orban. But do you think that we are too complacent as a nation, you know, because of our, our history? And you just sort of assume that these things are going to hold up. Yes, I think we're complacent. And by the way, I have my Foreign Office training to thank for helping me on Twitter because we were always supposed to keep telegrams under 800 words. So, <laughs> um, and it always had to have a summary where you encapsulated everything. And so I'm putting that to good effect now. I definitely think there is a complacency, this feeling it couldn't happen to us. We're fundamentally okay good old Britain, we're a force for good in the world. And that's what I felt myself. Not that I thought the UK was perfect by any means. I was aware there were inequalities in our society. I was aware we were sometimes hypocritical on the world stage, but I didn't really question the structures. And I'm not going to blame everything on Brexit and everything on Boris Johnson either. It's just that what's happened since the referendum and how the government has delivered Brexit that really dropped the scales from my eyes. It wasn't the vote to leave the EU. It was the willful, shameful, naked lying 
about the consequences of that choice and the options before us. And the fact, and it's caused me to question, well, how is this allowed to happen? And how is it still happening? Like a sort of national gaslighting. And how is it that all these lies can be out there and they're getting away with it and it's continuing? It's like black is white. I feel like we're living in an alternate world. And I think British people always had this idea, we're fundamentally decent, we stand in line, we queue, we res- sort of a gentleman's word is his bond. We are good fellows and we obey certain unwritten norms of our constitution. And what's been revealed in the last five years is that's only true if, willing, if people are willing to abide by it. And in order to deliver Brexit, all these soft guardrails of our democracy were trampled upon and the language of demagogues began to be used, the will of the people, enemies of the people. We were able to prorogue parliament, judges were attacked. All these unwritten norms were violated and that's what's caused me sort of somewhat down a path I hadn't expected of thinking, actually our system is more vulnerable than we thought. And perhaps we do need a written constitution and the system we thought worked only worked when people were willing to abide by these conventions. What we've had over the last few years, and it always used to be said, the beauty of the British constitution is that it isn't written down and therefore that it's flexible and that it can evolve over time. And there've been efforts to tinker with it over the years. There, you know, the House of Lords has been streamlined. There are less hereditary peers there. There has been an attempt to devolve power to the regions, but it's been very piecemeal. And I don't think it's necessarily adds up to a coherent structure. So yes, I think it has been a wake up call and it's an opportunity and tinkering at the margins isn't going to fix it. And there is nothing like a diplomat unleashed. after a long career. I know. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, it's, it's a bit worrying, really. <laughs> that baroness ship is coming closer <laughs> and closer. It's near the end of the show, so it's time to look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Roz. People have started realising that fewer kids are being born in the last few years and there was some excitement in the FT this week saying that this meant that you could start saving money on education and closing some schools, although that might be a bit difficult. But what they also found, which I think has gone under the radar, is that net migration has actually been going up despite Brexit since 2016. And this really took me by surprise because there are definitely fewer EU migrants. And if you look at the if you if you look at the stats, you can see fewer people are coming from the EU. But there are more people from other parts of the world, in particular Hong Kong, because of the visas that we've given out to people who mm. uh, um, who want to leave because of China's uh, influence there. And it's it's not you know it's not a small figure. It was net migration was one hundred sixty five thousand in twenty sixteen. It was two hundred and five thousand in 2020 which was you know lockdown year number one and it is extraordinary to me that that we have given up on any pretense of trying to cut immigration whether you think that's a good th- it's a good thing or a bad thing I think it was you can one say I think you can say what you think whether uh, well, it's a good or a bad thing Roz it's a it's usually a pretty good thing <laughs> 
Um, but one of the big aims of Brexit, it was always <clears> argued, <throat> was to have more control over migration figures. Now, perhaps we do have more control over migration figures and we do have the the opportunity to say, yes, you can go. You, you've been granted a visa. You haven't, which we didn't have before. But we're not letting fewer people come to live here. So what we are doing with these freedoms is you know, is is not what Brexit was sold as. That's good. It's one of the, the opportunities of Brexit that, that Kirsama was talking about. It it's is more, one of the things that, uh, uh, that Jacob Rees-Mogg ought to be highlighting as a benefit of Brexit, yeah. that we can actually uh, let in more people in a more specific way. But mm. surprisingly, he doesn't seem <laughs> to have done He'll be like, this yet. is exactly what I didn't want to happen. <laughs> yeah. Alex. The sort of freedom convoy, so-called, in Ottawa, in Canada. Mm. I've become fascinated with it because the the perception superficially is that it's an anti-lockdown thing, but actually it isn't. It's about restrictions in uh, border crossings for trucks. Canadian truckers are on the whole a very high percentage vaccinated group, over 90%. And, and I was surprised to find that quite a lot of the truckers in those protests are actually American. And that the Republicans have been pushing this really oh, yeah. hard. It's huge. That and the recent thing that's happened that has kind of flown under the radar in this country is that GoFundMe have now cancelled the GoFundMe page for them and have decided to return over nine million dollars worth of donations. And the Republicans are having an absolute hissy fit about it. Because there's obviously a link there. They're kind of trying to fuel it, hoping that it takes off mm. in the States as well. So that's that's a really, the GoFundMe stuff is really interesting because basically GoFundMe issued a statement saying, we now see that this campaign has veered onto activity that we consider unlawful and we will no longer um, continue to take donations for them. So. Alexandra. I tried to find a good news story and I had to spend almost two hours wading through various uh, news sites and opinion polls to find one that I thought <laughs> was vaguely good. I was on the Pew opinion poll page. Their 15 highlights from 2021 were all fairly depressing, including that only 70% of adults in America think that US democracy is a model worth following, which I thought was fairly shocking. But I did finally come across a survey that I think offers a glimmer of hope, which is a UNICEF survey of over 22,000 young people across 21 countries. And the results came out last week. And... The good news is that over 57% of young people still think that they will have a better life than their parents, um, though that declines in richer countries. And the older you get, with every year you get older, you're 1% less likely, apparently, to think that the future is going to be good. So, But I took heart from that, sir, because... Uh, as an older person myself, I really worry that we baby boomers are messing up the planet and our children's future and saddling them with debt. And it was good to hear that younger people retain that sense of optimism. It's a good job they haven't noticed what you've been doing. Well, as they get older, they increasingly do. <laughs> but... They will. And they're like, oh, <laughs> boomers. 
I want to talk about an article in Spectrum about an American company called Second Sight Medical Products, which first discontinued its pioneering retinal implants and then collapsed. This means that the implants will not be updated and they can't be fixed if they go wrong, so that their customers will eventually lose their sight. They're just waiting for something to oh go wrong goodness. and then that's the end of that. Um, I thought it was a pretty distressing cautionary tale about when companies invent life-changing technology and then let that technology become obsolete. To quote the article, what happens when cutting-edge implants fail or simply fade away like yesterday's flip phones and Betamax? Even worse, what if the companies behind them go bust? And it was just something that I hadn't thought about. Of course, it has echoes of the breast implant um, issues here and the, the hip replacement things that were made from cheap metal and rusted and all but, those companies. But these gone. were proper, yeah, these yeah. were very good. It's just they've simply gone almost like a, like it's a Blackberry and they've mm. got an iPod. And they're like, well, we're not, yeah. make, we're not making those anymore. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, but people do need them to see. It's not like they can just go and get the latest Gosh, implant. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the show. Thank you to Roz. Thank you. Alex. My pleasure. And our guest, Alexandra Hall-Hall. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for Patreons after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello from me to Cindy Jones, Adam Sanderson, Danny Slevin, Irv75, Richard Alderson, Dorothy Leposka-Hudson, Tim Ward and Kay Butler. Greetings and thanks from me to Simon G, Andrew Johnston, Richard Burnden, Dan Peters, Jonathan Shadwell, Doug Scott, Jane Fieldsend and Barnaby Beer. And thanks for me to Chris Wheeler, William Griffiths, MB, Lynn Carter, Chris Dornan, Nicholas Arundale, James Bagnall and Philip Mills. I'll see you next time. Oh God, what now? It was presented by Dory Linsky with Ross Taylor and Alexandreou. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? It's a Podmasters production. So in the extra bit this week, we have framed all the Valentine's Day cards you sent us. Thank you very much. <laughs> now we're turning our attention to romances in Westminster and asking just how powerful should the spouse of a political leader be? Alexandra, I want to start with you. The First Lady obviously has an official role in the United States. There's a long history. They have a certain um, celebrity. Some of them have done some some quite major things. How is the dynamic of a leader's spouse different um, between the UK and the US? Is it, is it really quite a radical difference? One of the differences is that they have a much more formal role. I mean, they are officially designated as the first lady. They are given um, a support staff and they are very much expected to take on a public role. Whereas I think in number 10 Downing Street, there is a sense that the spouse may or may not come along for official functions but they don't have that apparatus of the first lady or one day the first gentleman. Even on the very surface of it, there is a difference. I like how Jill Biden, who I think is a very impressive first lady, has defined her role. She has defined it as she is kind of the comforter in chief. I think there are three rules for the first lady in the United States. 
you must avoid any political engagement on anything where there is a cultural or a political divide. You absolutely cannot go anywhere on gun rights or abortion or any of those sort of kind of cultural divisive issues. You have to find a niche for yourself on kind of safe areas and previous first ladies are very traditionally supportive of the military, families of the military, education, children, young Mm. people. So you have to find a very safe space. And then I think you have to look good. (laughs) Those seem to be the three rules. Look good and stay quiet in public. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning. Your support really does help us keep going. So thanks for listening and see you next week. Thank you.